church. How are we doing? It's so good to be back in the house with our church family after being out of town last week with our family celebrating my sister's 30th birthday, so that was fun. Uh, but it's good to be back, good to be back with our church. Now, if you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. If you want to use your phone or your tablet, your Bible, whatever you got with you, Isaiah 40, looking at verses 25 through 31 this morning. And again, I want to welcome you if uh, you missed earlier as we were uh, talking through what's going on at our church. Today, after church, we have a Connect Group Expo, which is the groups that we have at our church to, to build relationships, and it's happening right outside. So as you leave the church, you'll see tents. You may have seen them as you're coming in. Uh, there'll be group leaders out there to let you know uh, what the groups are about and when they meet and all those different things. And so we would love to have you just stop by for a second meet some of our leaders, find a group that fits your schedule uh, as we start groups next week. So next week is the sign-up time and the starting. Okay? Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 25. Hear the reading of God's Word. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Amen. Amen. This is the word of our God. I want to tag our text today, They That Wait. They That Wait. Let's pray before we dig into God's word. Father, thank you uh, for your word, that it is life to us where there's death. It is hope to us where there's despair. It's peace where there's chaos. There's so much that is rich in your word. And so today, as we come to your word we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, our minds to see and to hear, that we might come away saying, have I not heard? Have I not seen? Have I not known that this is the true and living God? God, I pray that you would get all the glory as you transform lives for your kingdom and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl who was an Austrian neurologist and psychologist. But he also uh, spent the years of 1942 to 1945 in a concentration camp. 
You may have heard of Auschwitz, and he was in Auschwitz for a short amount of time, and then he spent time in other uh, concentration camps, three of them actually. So he spent a lot of time, years, in this terrible environment where he was constantly confronted with the horrific reality of the Nazis and, and how they were treating people, and, and uh, he was watching every man, woman, and child around him, literally their, their souls being tormented. And as he's watching this and making observations and trying to survive himself as he's in the middle of that, he realized some things and he started asking some questions. And miraculously, he was one of the people who survived, one of the few that made it out alive. And so he goes on to write a book about his, his experiences and he called it Man's Search for Meaning. And in the book, he talks about how what made the difference what, what was the difference between the person who could make it and the person who couldn't make it? Because everyone was experiencing this horrific circumstance and everybody was trying to endure and live just one more day. And this is what he found. It was hope. Hope was what changed everything. And this is what he wrote in his book. He said, The prisoner who had lost his faith in the future, his own future, was doomed. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed or wash or go out on the grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. He refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. And there he remained, lying in his own waist, and nothing bothered him anymore. He's, he's describing death by this deep, deep despair. What, what he witnessed in that concentration camp was the reality that many of us maybe have felt on a lesser, lower level. The reality that hope, without hope, you, you lose something. There, there's something that dies within you. That You realize as you go through hard times that the human soul was designed for hope. Right? You, you may not have walked through something as horrific as he had, but as he witnessed humanity at its darkest day, he saw a principle that, that applies across th things like raising teenagers. Right, You're in the middle of it, and, and as your kids get older, they start experiencing and doing things that maybe you don't have any explanation, any control over, and now you realize, I, I have gotten into this place where I'm just full of despair. I've lost all hope. And you start to feel something in you maybe dying. Or maybe it's, it's something else for you. Like you've lost somebody really close to you lately. I know for me the last couple weeks there, there's been a lot of grief. A lot of death. I was reading just the other day that in this last week, we as a nation crossed the threshold of one in 500 people now in America have died of COVID-19. That means most of us in this room probably know somebody close to us. And it's just been hard. How do we deal with that? How do we grieve with hope? Or maybe for you, it's, it's been something else where, you know, it's been loneliness and, and, and fatigue and, and you're struggling with, how, how do I have relationships that are meaningful in my life? Whether that's a, a romantic relationship or a friendship, and you just feel like even in the pandemic, now it's gotten harder. And you're wondering, is there hope for me to have real, deep, abiding relationship? We need hope, right? 
There's something within us, whatever your situation is, you realize that hope is part of the human soul's design, and without it, something in us dies. And so we're continuing this series in the book of Isaiah, and in chapter 40, there's a major shift. There's a major turn that happens in the book, and it's around this hinge, hope. In fact, we've been talking about how there's three major uh, sections in the book of Isaiah as we're walking through it this fall, and the first section is chapters 1 through 39. And in that section, you have a lot of warnings, a lot of communication about, hey, if you don't If you don't repent and turn back to God, there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. So there's there's a lot of language of warning in the first 39 chapters. And you know, they don't listen. God's people decide to continue down that path and, and they go into exile. And so chapters 40 through 55 is a major different tone. In fact, it's so different that that many uh, scholars have gone so far as to say this must be a completely different author. Because in chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah sounded depressed, and now in chapter 40, he sounds excited. This, this is not the same guy. There's no way this is the same guy. Now, I wouldn't go that far. I don't, I don't believe there's evidence of that. But I do think that it can be explained by the reality of the setting, that the audience has actually changed. What's happening in, in Isaiah chapter 40 is Isaiah is looking into the future as God gives him the, the prophetic word of what's going to happen to his people, and he gives them a message that's not for where they're at now, it's where they're going to be. So Isaiah 40 to 55 is a message for, hey, when it gets to this point that you are in exile, and this is the darkest day of your life, this is what God wants to say to you. Isn't that fascinating? Like when everything's going great and they're being warned and it seems like nothing bad could happen, God's message to them is, hey, it's, it's going to get bad if you don't come back to me. It seems like everything's great. And so his message to the comfortable is a warning, but his message to those that have been afflicted and are living in exile now is comfort. It's comfort. And he says, I I want to build into you a sense of hope that I haven't forgotten you. And so how does that happen? How how does hope uh, come about in our lives? That's the question I want to ask. How do we build hope during our suffering, in the midst of our suffering? Well, first we've got to look at the holiness of God. If you're taking notes, the first thing today is the holiness of God. Look at verse 25. It says this, To whom then will you compare me, that's God speaking, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I love that. I mean, this title here is amazing that that Isaiah over and over calls God the Holy One of Israel. In fact, he, he says it over 25 times in the book. It's kind of one of the distinguishing marks of Isaiah's book that that he would call God holy. And we've been talking as we've been walking through this series about what it means for God to be holy. And if you remember, we're saying that that word means to be unique or distinct or set apart. It's, It's to be different. And so God is saying right here in this passage, he's saying, who can compare to me? Like you look out and you you search for anybody that's like me and and nobody's like me. In fact, there's two ways in this passage that God is holy, that He's unlike anybody else. It's in His greatness, 
and His goodness. His greatness is seen in His control over the creation and all that He does and and all that He's made. In fact, we don't have to look very far. We don't have to search very hard. Uh, Astrophysicists can help us here, right? Imagine for a second, just to get a glimpse into the, the vastness, the majestic universe that God has created. Think about the distance between Earth and the sun. It's about 90 million miles. And imagine that was, that was the, the depth or, or the, the distance of this piece of paper. Now, you, had, you would have to have a stack, a stack of papers 70 feet high to reach the nearest star. Think about how, how vast that is. And that's just the nearest star. Then, then you think about our galaxy and how big the Milky Way is. You'd have to have a stack of papers 300 million or 300 miles, sorry, 300 miles high to get across the entire galaxy. And that's just one galaxy. That, that's just the ones that we, we know about. You think about the infinite multitude of all the galaxies in the universe and how vast God's creation is. In our own galaxy, there's a hundred billion stars. If you counted each star one by one, it would take you over 3,000 years. And that's just one galaxy. And you look at this incredible, vast creation of God, and you think, who could make all of that? Who, Who has the ability, who has the power, who has the knowledge to make all of that? But it's not just the magnitude of creation that shows his control and his power, but also his care. Isaiah goes on to say, and he uses this imagery of the military, he envisions God like a general who stands before all his soldiers and he calls out these celestial soldiers, these stars, and he knows each of them by their number and by their name. Every single one of them, the billions and billions and trillions of stars, he knows every single one of them. His point is this, that that even though all of that is so massive and so huge and God is beyond even what we can comprehend, He knows every single detail and He's involved. See, His holiness is shown both in His control and in His care, right? His greatness and His goodness are are inseparable. They they can't be taken apart. And, And trust me, you don't want a God who's only great. You, you don't want a God who's only great. And, and sometimes we slip into this as Christians. We, we live, and, and we don't realize this is happening, but we live as if God is only great. And in the name of holiness, we treat Him as if like you know he, He's up high and holy and other, and, and He doesn't ever get involved in my life, my lowly problems, my pain and my difficulty and my struggles with sin. He, he's up there doing something, and, and I'm out here living my life, and, and I might check in with Him every once in a while, but, but really I'm just doing my thing because God is too holy and too high for me. You ever felt that way? And, and you can tell it's like that when, I mean, we don't say that, but, but we live that way. Because we, we live most of our life not interacting with the God who's intimately involved in every detail of our life. Because he's too great. But if God is so great and and he's only great and he's not good, then then he has all control, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care. But listen, you you also don't want a God who's only good. You you don't want that either. And that, that might be the preference of our generation. 
There might be previous generations who, who their preference was a God who's only great and, and everything was this transcendent big God who's bigger than anything we've ever imagined. And now in our day, in the modern culture, it's much more about God cares about me and He cares about the things that I care about. He's, he's involved in, in everything that I'm doing and, and uh, he, he votes the way I vote and He talks the way I talk and, and He cares about the issues that I care about, right? He, he's like just this little partner for my life and, and He agrees with everything I like because He's good and He cares. But he, here's the irony of that. If He's only good but He's not great, then... He can't do anything about what you care about. Right? We, we like a God who, who, who's in control until He claims control over us. Right? We, we like a God who, who, who's in control of all the things that we care about except our own life. But if He's Lord of creation, that includes you. And so He can't be just a God who's, who's good because then he'll, he'll care about everything you care about, but he has no control over you or anything else, and he can't do anything about your pain. He can't do anything about your sin. He can't do anything about your hurt, because he is out of control. But listen, neither of those are the God of the Bible. The God who's revealed in the Scriptures, because he's great and he's good, means he's holy. You hear that? It, that, that's what sets them apart. Like there might be some people in your life who, who they, they're good people and, and they care about things, but they're not ultimately good. There, there might be some people in your life who, who they're, they're good uh, or they're great and, and they, they have some power and some influence and they can make some change in your life, but, but they're not ultimately powerful. See, God is, is fully great and he's fully good and he's both. This is what makes him unique. This is what sets him apart, that, that there's, there's a tension there, but it's a beautiful tension that brings together what makes him God. He's both. And so if he's both, then no one can compare to him. No one can be with you like he can be with you in the darkest of days. No one can do something about the problems that you care about like he can. No one can work for the sake of good in this world like God can because he alone is great and good. So what, what does that mean for us and our suffering, right? Well, that brings up this mystery. There, there's a mystery that flows out of that, and this is the second point, the mystery of suffering. Look at verse 27. Isaiah goes on to say, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's do, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, remember, this, this is a message for Judah when, when they're in exile. So he's imagining into the future when, when they will have been in exile for years, possibly decades at this point. And they're starting to feel this sense of God has abandoned me. God has forgotten me. Clearly, look at our situation. How could this happen unless God had forgotten us? And so they start, they start to express that complaint, and they, they start to say things like, we must be hidden from God. You ever felt that way? Like, I, I just feel invisible to God. You ever felt invisible? Like, he, he must be worried about somebody else, because clearly he doesn't care about my life. 
Clearly, he's not doing what, what I want him to do. And then they say this. They say, my right has been disregarded. The word there, right, is the same word for justice. It's, it's mishpat, like we've been talking about in this series. He's saying, my, my justice has been disregarded. My case before God has been, has been thrown out. No, no one cares about it anymore. He, he's completely disregarded the pain that I'm going through. He was supposed to show up, and he didn't show up. He was supposed to change things, and it didn't change. We've all been there, right? That's where Judah is. And then God responds in two fascinating ways, two, two questions. He says, have you not known and have you not heard? I love that because it, it's compassionate. Like he, He's asking a question. He's inviting them in. He, he's not accusing them of things, but, but he's gently pushing on their assumptions. He's saying, your, your thinking is off a little bit here, and let me challenge you with truth. And then he begins to remind them of what's true, that it seems, right? It seems like our circumstances show that God doesn't care about us anymore. But remember, he's the, the Lord of all creation and he knows everything. It says his understanding is unsearchable. And, and it may feel like your justice has been disregarded, but don't forget, he's the God who never gets tired of doing good. Right? He, he's challenging them to remember the truth because they've started to believe lies. And they didn't know they were believing lies until the trouble came. They didn't know it until the pain and, and the difficulty and the problem came. And then they started to realize there's, there's lies in my heart that I've been believing for a long time that I've never dealt with. See, suffering, listen, suffering, it, it'll surface all your doubts. It will surface all your doubts. In 2007, Florida went through a pretty severe drought. And I remember uh, hearing news of, you know, different changes in the climate and things that were happening. We had some fires and, and things that were happening because of the drought that summer. And uh, one of the things that changed was a lot of the water levels were going down. And uh, if you've been to Lake Okeechobee or heard of it, it's a massive lake, second largest lake in the country, I believe. And uh, the, the water had receded in some parts of the lake up to a mile. Imagine that. The water went down up to a mile. And it, it was the, the highest on record that they knew about. This was, this was the most the water had ever gone back. And so historians and archaeologists fled to the place because they wanted to see what was at the bottom of the lake. So they show up and, and the archaeologists begin to find artifacts from history over 500 years ago. Artifacts from Native American cultures and people who were, who were there well before America and, and they found, you know, weaving tools and, and uh, uh, war tools and all, all these different things that, that they had left. And, and uh, it was fascinating. And they said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because these kinds of things don't get exposed. But it took a severe drought. It took a severe drought that, that pulled the water back and it revealed what was there the whole time. The whole time. See, suffering will, will surface things. It'll surface things. And at least two kinds of doubt, I want you to take notes here, at least two kinds of doubt may surface. First, I'd call them open doubts. Open doubts. And, and what I mean by open doubts are, are genuine struggles. Like you, you have questions that you don't have answers to. I mean, God, I, I don't know what to do with this. I, I don't know how to answer this. And, and they're genuine things that you're struggling with, but you're still open to believing. 
You're open to saying, God, I, I, I bring this to you because I don't know what else to do with it. And so you're bringing it to him to, to help you process that. So you're, you're open. And this, this can be really healthy. This can be a, a good thing because I think, honestly, we need to normalize some of that kind of healthy doubt. So that we're not dismissing it and saying, you know what, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to move along. But, but really being able to take those burdens and take those doubts to God and you're open to God speaking into it. One of my favorite passages on this is Jude, uh, the book in the New Testament, Jude 22. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Did you know that was in the Bible? Have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because that's, that's all of us. None of us go through life without any doubts or any struggles or any questions. God, why did you allow us to miscarry again? God, why did you allow my marriage to fall apart? God, why did I get fired from that job that I love so much? God, you know, we, we all go through life struggling with things, but, but it's, it's calling us to be open to what God might say and do in that process. But listen, there, there's another kind of doubt that I want to call closed doubts. This is the same kind of struggle where, where you're going through a difficult time and, and uh, you're, you're bringing up these questions and these things that you're processing, but the difference is you've already made up your mind. You've already closed off any opportunity for God to work through the pain and the difficulty and the loss. You've already made up your mind about how to explain it, what it means, how God was wrong, how, how you've been abandoned. You, you've already made up your mind. You're closed off. Listen, this, this is the kind of, of doubt that Satan has been trying to get us to believe since the garden. Right? You go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3 and in the Garden of Eden and Satan shows up to Adam and Eve. And what does he try to get them to doubt? God's goodness. His goodness. He says to them, he doesn't care about you. He, he's not thinking about you. In fact, God is he, he's holding back from you. He's, he's keeping things from you because he doesn't love you. He, he isn't good towards you. And, and that's the lie that, that Satan was trying to get them to believe and was successful is that God isn't good. And listen, in the darkness of suffering, that's when we're most vulnerable to believe it. Because we can point to our circumstances and we can say, look, this is going on. Clearly, clearly God isn't good. Clearly God isn't taking care of it, so He doesn't care about me. And, and in, the, in the darkness of suffering, that, that's where the whispers of Satan will come and he'll say, see, I told you. I told you. He's not good. You hear that? This is, this is the ancient tactic of your enemy. It's nothing new. He comes to you in that point where, where you can say, I can feel the failure. I, I can point to the pain. I, I can name the never-ending issue in my life. And, and so therefore, it must be right. But let me tell you, this in my, my own life and in your life, I would suspect, is, is the point where we can say, this is where I've been arrogant. This is where I've been prideful. Because in, in my closed doubts, where I've already made up my mind, I, I've said you know, this clearly is, is something that I understand and, and I get, and clearly God doesn't get it, so I, I must be right. 
I've figured out what the right thing to do is, and, and my questions are too big for God, and, and my explanations must be correct because they make me feel better and comfortable. And You know, like, that's where you get to this point where the ultimate lie of the enemy is that you don't need God because you can be God. You can be just like Him. Isn't that what he said? You can be just like Him. And in suffering and in pain, that's, that's where we kind of elevate ourselves and say, this, this clearly is, is not God's goodness. See, the, the difference, listen to me, and we'll, we'll move on to the next part. The difference between open doubt and closed doubt is humility. It, it's not the struggle. It's not even the doubt. It's to, it's to take the doubt to God and say, I don't understand, but you do. I, I don't feel this, but, but you do. I don't like this, but you do. Help me, God. You see that? Like You're bringing the doubt to him to say, I, I don't know how this works in your plan. I don't know where you're going with this, but I'm bringing this to you because I want to be open to trust you. I want to be open to believe that you are good, that you are great, that your plan is greater than anything I can imagine or put together, and so I'm bringing it to you. Bringing it to you. And when you do that, you, you enter into this different work. See, uh, we don't live by explanations, right? We live by promises. That's what the scriptures say. We're, we're not living by explanations and, and understandings, but we're living by the promise of God. And this is the work. The last point is the work of waiting. Look at verse 29. It goes on to say, He gives power. God gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, I I love this because God, this this high and mighty and powerful, all-consuming God, he, He is so powerful, yet He shares His power. He shares his power with the powerless. I wish we could just preach a sermon on that. He doesn't say, this is my power and I'm going to hold on to it. But he says, I'm going to give it to the weak. I'm going to freely give all that I have. I'm going to share it because you need it. And he gives his power and he says, my power is not like any other power you've experienced. This human power out there, it has a season. And he gives some examples, right? When you're young, you can run a long ways. When, when you're in the military, you, you can do things, but eventually you're going to fall. He says, but this power is different. Because every runner, eventually, they get tired. Every strong nation eventually falls. But this God, he never fails. He has supernatural strength that, that's unlike any other strength. And I love what he says. He says, it's going to be so abnormal. It's going to be like you somehow sprouted wings and now you begin to fly. Like this, this is going to be a strength you can't explain. It's supernatural. And how do you get it? You wait. Because they who wait. I love that because, listen, God's power is not about your willpower. It's about waiting. It's about waiting. Waiting is such a beautiful biblical word for faith. 
Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, the Christians waiting and watching is hoping. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. Hoping is also not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what He said He will do. Did you catch that? It's it's not saying I'm going to do nothing. In fact, it's the opposite. It's saying I'm going to do everything God has called me to do with an eye toward His arrival. With an eye towards he is coming, he, he is arriving, he, he is going to make things different, and so I'm going to work and wait and work and wait. And so uh, you see that the goal in our suffering isn't to escape it. The goal in our suffering isn't even to understand it. It's to find God in it. It's to find God in it. To walk on our toes anticipating his arrival because somewhere in the midst of it, He's there, and He's coming. I mean, this, this is the work of hope. The work of hope is to wait. It's to wait. In, uh, in that movie series, and based on the book series, The Hunger Games, anybody seen it? In The Hunger Games, the first movie, uh, you kind of get the lay of the series, and, and you find out there's this guy named President Snow who runs this futuristic society, and, uh, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the story, I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts, but they have a game system called the Hunger Games. And they have these different districts where they bring one uh, boy and one girl from each district. So now there's 24 contestants and they basically compete till the death. There's, there's only one winner at the end. And it's this whole system to create uh, this, this bondage and this oppression to keep the lower class in their place. And it's, it's terrible how, how they bring this about, and, and the movie kind of draws out some of the social implications of that. But, but uh, it's, it's fascinating to see how the people in power thought about the whole system. And you see this scene in the movie where President Snow is speaking to his, his uh, chief games maker. His name was Seneca. And he says to Seneca, he says, Hey, Seneca, why do you think we have these games? Well, why even have the Hunger Games? And he says, uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What, why, why would we have these games? And he says, no, really, why do you think we have the games? He says, uh, if, if we wanted to just create fear, then we could just get 24 random people, line them up, and be done with it. But instead, we have these games. Why have the games? And he says, I, I don't know. He looks confused. He doesn't understand where he's going with this. And he says one word. He says, hope. And Seneca looks at him confused even more, and he says, hope. Why would we have these games to bring hope? And this is what he says. He says, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective, meaning effective for their purpose. But a lot of hope is dangerous. A spark is fine as long as it's contained. And so he says, well, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, so contain it. Contain the hope. See, the enemy of our soul in, in this life, and in, in the spiritual battle that we're in, he wants nothing more than to contain your hope. He wants to contain your hope because he knows that if he can contain our hope, he has the victory. He knows that, that it's dangerous for us to have hope because in, in, in hope, there's this danger that his lies might be exposed. 
that his, that his, his work against us might be uh, failing. He tries to get us to focus on the pain. He tries to overwhelm us with our past. He tries to convince us that we're losing in this battle. He tries to contain it. He tries to stop it because he knows hope is dangerous. Hope is what tears down barriers. Hope is what changes pasts. Hope is what turns around marriages. Hope is what transforms communities. Hope is what reconciles enemies. Hope is what brings about the crushing of our idols, the healing of our heart. Hope is what brings that. And hope is rooted in God's arrival. See, not only does God know our pain, not only does he, 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 uh, is He aware of what's going on in our life, He chooses to enter into it. He chooses to enter into the pain, into the suffering, into the sin itself. And He comes in the person of Jesus. He comes as one who is high and lifted up, but looks low. He comes low and He comes as the Son of God, but also as the Son of Man. He comes in power, but also in humility. He comes as a king, but He comes as a poor carpenter. Right? You see this tension in Jesus where, as our Redeemer, He had to be both. He had to be fully man so that he could live the righteous life that we're supposed to live and die the righteous death we're supposed to die. But he also had to be fully God so that he could carry the sin of the whole world on his shoulders. The sin of the whole world and win the victory of our salvation. He had to be both. He had to be God and man. He had to be fully divine and fully human so that he could overcome sin and even death itself. Because, see, listen, Good Friday, the, the cross of Good Friday, it, it had to be overcome. It couldn't hold back the, the grave, the empty grave of Easter Sunday. The darkness had to give way to light. The grave can't contain God's hope. And so God spoke truth to the trouble and he said, get up, my son, rise in victory. And so now we live between these two arrivals, right? We live between the first arrival where God comes and he establishes our hope. But now we look forward to the second arrival where God will come again in victory and then he will complete our hope and then he will shine like the sun and then we will see him as he is and then we will see him in his glory and then we will see him in his love, we'll see him in his power, his mercy and then the weary, the weary will no longer have to wait. No longer have to wait because he'll be here fully. That's, that's the hope. That's the dangerous hope that changes us. And so as we close today um, and we get ready to sing again, I want to ask you do, you, do you need to wait on God for that kind of strength? Because wherever you find yourself today, maybe you're weary from, from sin that's gripped your heart and your life and it's, it's causing wreckage and, and you're just exhausted. Or maybe you're weary because of suffering in your life that's happened to you and, and it was out of your control and, and you're asking God questions you have no answer for. I don't know where you find yourself, but God is saying to all of us today, He's saying, wherever you're weary, that's where I want to work. But I need you to wait. I need you to have this expectant, ready eagerness looking towards me that I am going to come. And in that faith, in that hopeful waiting, that's where I'll work. That's where I'll give you strength. And it'll be strength that makes no sense. It'll feel like you're soaring when you should be weeping. But it's my strength. It's 
my strength. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you come, you arrive on the scene where there's hopelessness and despair. And as you look out upon Jerusalem, you wept because you saw people who were helpless and harassed by the sin of this world and by the sin that captures our hearts. And God, to know that we have a God who weeps is so comforting. It's so comforting to know that you enter into our pain, but you don't enter in just to be with us. You enter into the pain and the sin and the suffering to conquer it to be victorious over it. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look forward to the day that you eradicate all the brokenness in our own heart, our own world, and you set up your kingdom in full, and that every tear is dried and every life is transformed, we can look forward to that even now. And we can wait in expectation. And so as we do everything with an eye towards your arrival, God, I pray for strength. I pray for those who right now are walking through difficult, dark days. People who've been crying out for months or years, wondering, God, when are you going to arrive? I pray today would be a day that your spirit brings another another ounce, another dose of, of comfort just at the right time to remind them of your presence, to help them know that you haven't forgotten. But across the vast universe, you're aware of every particle, and you call them by name. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.